0: Steve Martin once said, The thing about the banjo is when you first hear it, it strikes many people as, what's that? There's something very compelling about it to certain people. Well, my guest today on the program not only found the banjo very compelling, she found it rather compelling at a very early age. And guess what? All these years later, to her, it's as compelling, beguiling, and mysterious as ever. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of my guest today on the program, Alison Brown. Let me tell you a little bit about Allison Brown. In a sunny San Diego high school somewhere in the 70s, while kids were listening to Aerosmith and Van Halen in Boston, Allison Brown was listening to bluegrass. She had started on the guitar, but gravitated to the banjo, and by her teens, she was already pretty proficient on the instrument. She won first place at the Canadian National Banjo Championship, played a gig at the Grand Old Opry, and toured one summer with fiddler Stuart Duncan. After high school, she headed to Harvard, knocked out an MBA at UCLA, and then went to work as an investment banker. You know, the typical bluegrass story you hear all the time. Thinking music was a weekend thing, Brown had a nice balance going. But then, music decided to tip the scales. Alison Krauss flashed the bat signal for a banjo player and Brown answered the call and gave up her Wall Street environs for a life in music. And what a life it's been. An internationally recognized virtuoso on banjo. Brown has played with Alison Krauss, Michelle Shocked, fronted her own Alison Brown Quartet, toured all over the world from Japan to South America, along the way playing the Kennedy Center, the Newport Folk Festival, the Cambridge Folk Festival in England, and the Galway Arts Festival in Ireland. With a Grammy in her trophy case, I mean, I'm just assuming she has a trophy case, what do you do? You win a Grammy, you have to get a trophy case. Where else are you going to put it? You can't just put it on the sink, right? I'm guessing that you've got to put it in a case. Anyway, Alison has been featured on CBS Sunday Morning, NPR's All Things Considered, and with close to 15 critically lauded albums under her musical belt, including her fabulous new one, No Banjo, Alison Brown has proven herself to be an artistic force. And what of On Banjo? Well, putting it simply, it's a stunner. A deftly played collection filled with technical prowess, musical finesse, and compositional dexterity, On Banjo is celebratory, joyful, and cathartic. Brown is the co-founder of the Compass Records Group and serves on the board of the Nashville Chapter of the Recording Academy and... She's the co chair of the Steve Martin Banjo Prize. I'm probably leaving things out, but what can I do? There's so many great things she's done. Consider this a partial list. Long story short, Allison Brown is kind of a big deal. And guess what? She's as nice as can be. So here you go. Me and Allison Brown having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. That fills you with optimism and, and hope.
1: <laughs> you know, yes, it is. Um I am definitely more of a spring summer person than I am a fall-winter person. So yes, it it is and it does. And but you're out in Berkeley, California, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. You you don't get the same kind of rebirth feeling that we do in the South.
0: We don't get that. And we've only heard that it exists. So we we know with rumors <laughs> that it's real.
1: Well, I I grew up in La Jolla, so I kind of know the the California problem. Well, you can, yes, the seasons are just more subtle in California.
0: Yeah, especially now, it's all getting to be a very weird pattern, but um, I didn't realize that you were from California.
1: Yeah, well, my family moved out there when I was 11, so that's where I consider myself to be from, so, and I lived in San Francisco, too. I worked in the financial district for a few years. Um, when I was an investment banker, so I lived up on Knob Hill. and I love that area. the Bay Area, too. is just probably still my favorite part of the country.
0: Those were the Smith Barney years. Is that right?
1: Yes, they were the Smith Barney years.
0: <laughs> I was I was looking over your biography and I thought my my first thought was, was that a period of time where you thought, well, music won't be the primary thing I do? or was that was that sort of like, what was your mindset during that? during that time period?
1: Well, my mindset pretty much for most of my life up through that point was that music was, you know, something that was excellent cocktail party conversation topic, but I never intended that um, to be a career, mostly because I didn't think it was possible. Um, So yeah, I mean, I went to college and then business school because, you know, it it was two years instead of law school, that was three years. I mean, just stupid reason to go. <laughs> but I did. And I thought, well, you know, I went to UCLA business school and I thought, well, I'll get into the music business. And I did an internship at AM Records and was so put off by the whole game of record company. Um that I took a job when the investment banks all came and that's what everybody wanted to do. So I'm like, okay, I'll I'll just do that. How bad can it be? <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Oh was
1: well. it was great experience. It was um, really good to have done because now I know what I'm not missing. And it's really what kind of gave me the courage to step away and try music just for a few months to see what would happen. And I think that if it had been something that I was really passionate about, that would have been harder to do. But I mean, there are people who are passionate about tax-exempt debt, believe it or not, but I am not one of them.
0: (laughs) You and I are around the same age. And I think we grew up in a time where it was like, get your schooling done, get your education, and then you can go being a punk band or do what you need to do, but you'll cause you'll have this to fall back on. exactly. Uh, I don't know if that mindset is the same as it is now, but was that what you were thinking like, no matter I have at least I' have this education i I can i I'm, I'm I feel a little safer making a foray into the the world of music as a full time vocation.
1: I was not ever that brave to think that way. I mean, I truly thought of, you know, like the real job as the job, you know, and banjo playing is something that you do on the weekends in a part time band and seriously like cocktail party conversation topic. Um, But it was just a series of baby steps that took me to where I am now rather than like jumping off a cliff.
0: When you reverse engineer and you see now that it is a vocation and it is not just for weekends and right. It it actually is like the real deal, the primary. Um, Do you think like, oh, I should, I should have known that. or Or do you
1: know? How could you know? Because, you know, it's like, you can look back and maybe think one way, but then you just have to remember the context of the times. And especially in music or in bluegrass music, like in the world of banjo players, right? There weren't banjo players that were making a, good living playing banjo in the 70s, really, you know, 80s. I mean, David Grisman was kind of like the flagship guy for, you know, an instrumentalist who was making a real statement as an instrumentalist coming out of our world. And I can't think of another one that was succeeding on that level. And then of course, Bela Fleck came along, but that wasn't until the late 80s, really, that he started his own thing. So there really wasn't a model for it. So Um, And I think that you just have to remember that now I think it's easier. Now a lot of things are different. It's easier to imagine. I mean, there've been more people that have come out of bluegrass and roots music and had like, you know, somewhat mainstream success or legitimate mainstream success like Alison Krauss, but that hadn't really happened yet. Um, But, and I think too, now people don't expect a job to last a lifetime. And I think that you and I are both old enough to remember when, Now, maybe you were a little bit cynical about it, but chances were better than not that you could start a career in investment banking and finish a career in investment banking. And now I think that there's just uh, kind of less loyalty uh, of companies towards their employees and then less, and the reverse is true too. So, you know, I I think that young people today, they aren't kind of looking for like a 40 year career doing one thing. So maybe they allow them, themselves more latitude to try other things. But you know, then you just have to remember that the kind of music that I came out was of and still exist in, still just by and large flies underneath the mainstream radar. So any expectations for it are just lower. I mean, I don't think anybody gets into bluegrass music expecting to be a commercial success. And there have been a few that it's worked for. Certainly Billy Strings is like the, the poster child at the moment, but Alison Krauss was another one too have mm-hmm. platinum selling records that's that was pretty unprecedented and it still is not something that people should ever plan on
0: <laughs> you're right there was a little shift in the late 80s where katie lang dwight Yocum, bella fleck they sort of crossed over from their niches into the mainstream um and it was kind of a cool thing where like you know like indie rock kids were listening to dwight Yocum, like you know or listening mm-hmm. to katie lang and and um there was that kind of shift but you're right before that where was the shift there really wasn't one
1: yeah I think you're right I'm trying to think and I mean I can't I mean okay well so I guess we could say Flatten and Scruggs yeah. or we could say the Osborne Brothers I mean they had number one you know Billboard chart country records in the 60s so maybe there have always been like little examples here and there but you know I don't know, but I I think the changes in the music industry have have shifted everybody's expectations too of what what is a success. You know, now you can shake hands with your fans in a different way. Before it was all shake and howdy, (laughs) you know, in person. Now it's more like shake and howdy like on social media or, you know, virtually. So there's more there's less barriers uh, between you and your fans, and there's less barriers of entry into the music business too. I mean, anybody can make a record on their computer and upload it via cd baby or some other platform and be one of the hundred thousand tracks a day coming out on spotify so it's a, such a different model now
0: my perception is that you know if you look at your undergraduate years and your graduate years and then smith barney um, it seemed you strike me as a very disciplined person um were you as a musician were you always, were you, could you disappear into your room for hours and just work on the banjo? Were you always very, your work ethic very strong?
1: I don't know if it's a work ethic as much as just a passion, you know? Um, I mean, I love playing the banjo and I can still like go up in my banjo room on the weekends and stay up there for six hours just playing. It's kind of like a Bermuda triangle for me. You know, I can really just disappear in it. Um, so it's, it's a great thing, I and mean, it's wonderful, too, to still have such a passion for it and um, enjoy doing it, but also feel like there's so much I still have to, to learn and discover about it, figure out, you know, so there's, I feel like I still have so much work to do, and so that keeps me motivated also.
0: Because being an artist is sort of like, I've likened it before to being sort of like Sisyphus, where you you keep rolling that rock up the hill and then you got to keep coming back down where you never really feel that it's something that you can master, which I guess is also you know, part of the pull.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and I, I always like remind students of that too, like people that, you know, are learning to play an instrument and they look at somebody who's so much better than they are. And it's all on a spectrum, you know, we're all looking at things we can't do that we want to be able to do and people that have more fluency on their instruments than we have. So there's always a higher bar to reach or always a taller mountain peak, but that's exciting too. I mean, I don't know if it's that way for investment bankers. I didn't stay long enough to find out. Maybe it is, maybe at the highest level of finance, there's always some guy or some you know woman who's got those tax exempt bond refundings just <laughs> refined even more, You know, I don't know.
0: Yeah, because I, mean, I think there's artistry to everything, right? So an investment banker putting together a beautiful deal, is there's an artistry to that.
1: That's true. I completely agree with that. And, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's an elegance to like a, a perfectly structured bond refunding, just the way there is to a perfectly structured, you know, melody, or I know you're a writer. I mean, like the same thing, like a perfect paragraph or, yeah, you know, so, yeah. yeah.
0: You're always in the hunt for it. And then when you do it, you go, I got to do it again.
1: Right. Because (laughs) that high is the best high of all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. I I heard Phil Collins talking about years ago about when he sat behind a drum kit as a kid, he went, oh, this is it. This is where I need to be. Can you talk about the way that you hoarded the banjo? Like when you picked it up, did you go, oh, this feels right? That's my romantic idea. Um, How was that for you?
1: Well, that's a that's a really good question because when I picked up the banjo, it was really uncomfortable to hold because I I started off playing guitar and guitar sits so nicely on your leg. A uh, banjo is this round thing and it's just like falling off your leg. And then you have to wear these picks that are uncomfortable and hard to get used to. And I was like used to just playing finger style guitar with just bare fingers. So there was nothing physical about it that was easy at first. But when I heard Earl Scruggs' Foggy Mountain banjo record, I just loved the sound of the instrument and I loved like imagining the America that that sound came from, which is really different than like suburban Connecticut, where we were living when I first heard the banjo, the sound of the banjo that made me want to play it. So yeah, I think it was more like the idea of where it could go rather than just like the actual physical reaction to playing one for the first time, because it really took a few years. Um, Guitar was much easier. Like physically for me, than banjo was.
0: It took a few years for it to feel seamless.
1: Oh, no, it's taken a lifetime for it to feel seamless. But (laughs) it definitely took a few years for it to not feel like this weird lollipop that was like sitting in my lap that kept wanting to slide off. Um, You know, you just, that's one of the things that you just have to get used to with that instrument. And I think it's harder than a guitar in that way, you know, just getting comfortable with the physical part of playing the instrument and that that took a while.
0: Yeah, and you started playing so young that, I mean, I would think a young person might go, this is awkward. I need to find something that's, the guitar feels better to me. So mm-hmm. no one no one would blame you for, for putting it down. But I love that you stuck with it. Was it just, it was just the sound of it that really?
1: Well, it was the sound of it, and then it was moving to San Diego and going to the San Diego Bluegrass Club meeting at the Shakey's Pizza Palace in Lemon Grove, and and seeing, you know, Stuart Duncan and his kid band up on stage, just wearing it out on Earl's breakdown and going in the parking lot and jamming with other people and getting drawn into that community. And I think that's one of the great strengths of roots music for sure. But bluegrass music in particular is the community and people are so generous. And like the jam sessions outside in the parking lot, anyone will show you anything they know. And that's what really got me excited about it.
0: Being a teenager, like in the late seventies, where you have like punk rock and you have the stuff that was happening in New York did that show up on the radar for you at all or were you just strictly strictly bluegrass
1: I was such a bluegrass nerd I mean I was like wearing western shirts which is like the the bluegrass outfit of Southern California bluegrass is western shirts and big belt buckles and that was me going to high school with the surfers and surfer chicks in La Jolla um, with my pictures of Earl Scruggs in my binder. I was just completely eat up with bluegrass music to the point that when, you know, years later, I joined Michelle Schock's band as her um, band leader. I was leading this band that was like R&B guys and this and that. And I had never been in a situation where I wasn't in a band where everyone was fighting over the new copy of Bluegrass Unlimited magazine. <laughs> that was the first time that I was like the bluegrass nerd and and I was in a completely different kind of musical setting. So yeah, it was all about Ralph Stanley, Earl Scruggs, you know, well David Grisman, Tony Trishka, the progressive guys, but completely oblivious to everything else that was happening in music.
0: And that was such a dominant time for those different kinds of music. I mean, did you ever feel like, I was born in the wrong era? Did you really like an anachronism going to high school?
1: Yeah, sometimes I feel like, you know, the banjo in the late 1800s, you know, that could have been a really sweet time to be a banjo player Um, because it was America's most popular instrument back then which is crazy to say out loud and think about Um, but at the same time you know the fact that we live in this time where so much different kind of music is so easily accessible to us like especially you know now with Spotify which has comes with its own set of challenges for the music industry and for creators but just the convenience of you know me saying Anat Cohen plays great shoro music and you're like I've never heard her do that and then two seconds later, you can hear it. And, you know, you think about how we used to have to struggle to learn something new, like all those hours of sitting there with Earl Scruggs records and the LP on, you know, 16 RPM or whatever, and the really slow, rah, 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 trying to figure out the banjo licks. And now it's like anything you want to know, a few clicks, the information's there. So, you know, it would be hard. It's that That's a huge advantage and a huge convenience that we all have that I think I would miss if I had to go back in the time portal to banjo circa 1894.
0: <laughs> why did it decline? What was the, the reason why the banjo declined?
1: That's a good question. Um, and I am not really sure of what the answer is on the five string banjo, classic banjo side of things. Um, but the banjo made its way into jazz, like at the turn of the 1900s. And then it was replaced by the guitar. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of just became relegated to old time music and then the, the big Renaissance came with Earl Scruggs and bluegrass music, but I, I don't know I need to, to dig into that a little bit more I'm not sure why the classic banjo thing died down and it's still you know there's still a lot of classic banjo players in Britain. Um, and in fact that's where I've heard m- most of that style of playing is British players they still like have classic banjo clubs, you know, playing that like, it's not really three finger but it's picked banjo kind of a more serious repertoire. And some of the ragtime stuff too. But I don't know. I will research that and I'll let you know. so <laughs> now yeah. I'm because now I'm curious. It's like why why did it wane? I'm not sure. But maybe just like all musical styles kind of wax and wane.
0: Yeah, I mean everything changes, right? But having having been so popular and then to sort of not be the most popular instrument, it's kind of interesting to think about what happened, what the cultural what the cultural mm-hmm. shift was, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. No, um, that's, that's a really good question.
0: What is your relationship to the instrument now? How has it changed, say, from 20 years ago? Like, how how would you describe your relationship to the banjo?
1: Um, well, what would I describe my relationship to the banjo? I don't know. It's so much of my identity. I don't know that it's more of my identity than it was 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but it's certainly not less. And I feel like in terms of, the instrument being my voice, which it really is since I'm, since I'm not a singer, um, I think I've come to understand better what works on the instrument and what doesn't work quite as well. And that's been one of the challenges as a, as a composer of music for the instruments, especially not bluegrass. So there was never really a path for how to put across the tunes that I was coming up with. And there have certainly been innovators like Bela and many others, but to present my particular music and compositions, it took a while to figure out the right instrumentation. And it's taken some time too, to figure out which tunes just because I wrote them on the banjo will be good and which, you know, don't leave enough room for everybody else, if that makes sense. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the banjo is the vehicle by which I've kind of begun to understand myself and also, you know, been able to create a community in which, you know, I can discover who I am but then also help other people kind of in the, on their journey too so it's kind of been a, a pretty holistic uh vehicle I guess for me
0: does it also give you a kind of compositional um efficiency now that you know like okay this I need I need to go right instead of left on the instrument does that make in terms of composition does it make the process more streamlined a little bit easier is the wrong word because <laughs> it's not easy yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that's a a really good question. Yes, it does in a way, but then you have to be so careful not to keep writing the same thing over and over.
0: Right. right. But I
1: think the more comfortable I get with my voice on the instrument, the easier it's become for me to collaborate with other people. And that's something that I didn't do that much of. I mean, I really haven't done that much of it until more recently. And, um, you know, getting to collaborate with our pianist, Chris Walters, that's been really fun because he also likes to imagine, you know, like, the piano in the late 1800s, and I'm imagining the banjo in the late 1800s, and then we write this really unmarketable music, and that's always a lot of fun. But you know, collaborating with Steve Martin, which I got to do on this new record, was really great too. It's like you know, to to have enough, I guess, confidence in what you're doing to be able to open it up for somebody else's input and know that you can, that it's going to be okay, and actually want to invite somebody else's perspective. That's, I think, something that for me has come with just maturity and many years of playing the instrument.
0: So the idea of the collaborative process must be incredibly rewarding for you, both artistically um, and and also just purely creatively, to start thinking about other people, that these compositions don't just happen in a kind of vacuum. There's something that's going to be, there's a fellowship to them.
1: Exactly. I mean, music is all about community. And in, and community in the creative process, which is relatively new thing for me, is really I'm finding to be a really exciting thing because, like I said, you don't want to keep rewriting your same ideas. Mm-hmm. And you know, to invite somebody else's energy and input and insight um, into a composition, that's actually turns out to be a really fun thing to do. And then certainly in terms of like you know executing something or writing something with someone in mind, like you know, the Shoro that I have on my new record, um, I wrote with not Cohen in mind, who's not somebody I've ever met, but I've kind of worshiped from afar and, and watched her YouTube, many YouTube videos, especially her Brazilian Shoro stuff. And though she's more, of a, comes out of the jazz uh, clarinet tradition. And, you know, just to be able to reach out to somebody like that and say, hey, would you, I kind of wrote this with you in mind, would you do it and have someone say yes. And that's, um, I shouldn't be surprised because generosity just seems to be a common thread through the musical community and most people will say yes way before they ever even start to think about why they could possibly say no. Um, So that's really rewarding and, and super fun.
0: If you keep in mind the idea, like Plato's analogy of the cave, where it's sort of like, if you're in the darkness and you see the light, you can't go back to the darkness, right? Mm-hmm. So for you, now that you've gone into the collaborative part of, of the process, is it something you want to keep doing? In other words, this is how you want to do things from now on. You, want, you don't want to go back to the way that you were doing it before.
1: Well, I think that you can have some dark and some light in the banjo of the world. <laughs> Fair because enough. it's you know it's certainly fun to go sit in your room and you know come up with tunes but then you know another way to get you know to have an entertaining time writing new music is is through collaboration so i think they're both equally valid and you know both enjoyable in their own way but certainly collaborating like i think especially after the last few years with the pandemic and isolation and all that stuff i think i'm kind of welcoming the collaboration stuff a little bit more just because who wants to sit in their room by themselves anymore it's like we did that enough Mm. uh the last few years so i think i i for one certainly am looking towards like doing stuff with other people as an antidote for the pandemic years
0: the pandemic turned us all into uh nick drake and emily dickinson
1: We all. did
0: um how would you describe steve as a player
1: He's a great banjo player. He's a really serious musician. He has a beautiful touch on the banjo. um, Really a delicate touch. He pulls a great tone out of the claw hammer banjo. And he's really just a joy to play with. And he has really great musical instincts. And writing the tune that we wrote together um, was actually the first one that we've written together, but we've written a couple others since then. Just really like falling off a log. He just you know, pulled the threads from the the a section, I sent him so perfectly into a B section and came up with something that just fit, you know, just like hand and glove. It was great. So just super fun. And I think, you know, that collaboration with Steve and the couple other things that we kind of working on together is one of the things that's encouraged me to think more of collaboration as a really interesting vehicle to just experiment with and see what you get.
0: Did you hear his record with E. Brackel, the one they did together?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. That last so one. good right
0: oh my god it's so good yeah so good i listened to that i thought his you know i'm not a musician but his technical facility is what really knocked me out
1: mm-hmm. he's really a really musical person and it's just unfair because he has so many talents uh, but you know <laughs> music is not really shouldn't take a backseat to the to any other of his talents on the list i mean he's a great musician
0: and also if you go back and you look at him in the 70s he always had it with him like, it was always
1: there. Yeah, that's true. And then it kind of faded away a little bit. And then it's it's great that he brought it back um, because it's a great thing for the banjo community. And he's done so much for the banjo just by playing it, you know, like bringing it like to the, you know, the mainstream audience again. That's always a beautiful thing. And the music that he's written on the banjo, I've had a lot of banjo players tell me that they love his records because his tunes are really great, beautiful tunes, fun to play, and not too hard. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people like to learn his stuff, which is very cool. And then, of course, he's done amazing things with the Steve Martin Banjo Prize, um, putting, you know, I don't know, over half a million dollars into the banjo community over the last, I think the prize is going into its 13th or 14th year this year.
0: And that increases visibility, and which which I think is a, such an important thing.
1: Yeah, it increases visibility and it's also just such good validation because the banjo, you know, is is a serious instrument but yet it's also the butt of many jokes. Or it's like, uh, you can find it in Symphony Hall, but yeah, you can find it in the barnyard too. So it's one of those instruments like unlike flute that doesn't have that kind of cultural ambiguity. Mm -hmm. The banjo can be hayseed, but yeah, we know some people are trying to do more serious things with it, but yeah, it's really better just like as music for a high-speed car chase. So since the banjo is like right. constantly dealing with that dichotomy, it's amazing to have someone like Steve step in and say, oh, this is, this is a legitimate, real thing. Just his presence makes it more legitimate in the eyes of the mainstream. That's really powerful.
0: Yeah, I agree. My challenge to myself as a person is to be a little bit better every day. Incrementally is fine. Just a little yeah. more patient, a better friend, a little more under whatever it is, just a little better every day as an artist do you feel like with your new album it, and it's so weird to look at discography and think okay this is my best one but do you feel that that you're on record it's becoming more refined and so um I do find with musicians like the latest thing is always the favorite thing um and sometimes the thing they haven't even recorded yet is their it is a favorite thing mm-hmm. um and it's probably not fair to pick favorites but do you feel like with the new album like I really hit this one like I really feel good about this one
1: Yeah, there are certain moments that are really musically satisfying for me, for sure. And, you know, when I listen to some of my earlier records, especially the ones when I had smaller children at home, I can hear that. You know, I can hear the lack of time to put into the music. And this record, because of the pandemic and other factors, I had more time to really invest and really get it you know, get get it to be compositionally what I wanted it to be, not just kind of like tacking on a C-section in the studio because we knew we needed one and there was no time left, which, you know, happened a lot on other records. That kind of thing didn't happen on this record. And so for those reasons, uh, yeah, there's definitely some things that are much more musically satisfying.
0: And also, can you hear the the community on the new album versus, say, the first or second album? Does it sound like more more of a collaborative... Thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely the band tracks, for sure, where, you know, the guys that I tour with, I mean, we've played a lot of shows together, and we've gone through this process of figuring out what works well on the banjo, not just for the banjo, but, you know, how should a piano accompany a banjo, or how does, how, how does a drummer think about it when a banjo is subdividing everything into 16th notes? So that changes how a drummer needs to think about his role in the music, because you don't want to be competing with the banjo. So because we've all, like, been thinking about that collectively and playing the music. Yeah, definitely much more refined and I can definitely hear the fact that we've been able to up our game, you know, just as an ensemble, figuring out how to make that sonic tapestry work to best advantage. Cause that is a challenge when you start to pair instruments that don't have a roadmap, you know, that goes with it, you know, in a bluegrass context, Everyone knows what the mandolin does and what the fiddle does because the roadmap was set in the mid 1940s, 1945. But for this kind of thing, and it's kind of it's been the challenge and the opportunity, and it's been really gratifying to see us figure it out.
0: Is the sequencing like for the new album? Was that a tricky thing that you lost a little sleep over? Like, how do I sequence it? What goes first? What goes last? Is that what is the? Yeah. How do you figure that out?
1: Yeah, that was tricky. I didn't lose any sleep over it, but it was (laughs) tricky. (laughs) Um, And you know, this record especially was a little tricky to sequence. And ultimately I decided since we have strings on the first, on what's now the first track and strings, a string quartet um, as the last track that they kind of made sense as bookends. And then once I kind of figured that piece out then it was just a matter of, you know just trying to get the pacing right. It's a challenge, but you know, technology does make it easier because we can dump it all into our iTunes library and move things around so much easier than we used to be able to when it was all like on cassette tapes, like what, how did we even do that? Like sequence records, you know, with cassettes and it used to be so much harder. Now you can kind of vet your ideas much more easily, but yeah, that was how I sequenced this ultimately was just kind of use the strings as bookends and then fill in them in the middle.
0: I heard a great story where when the Joshua Tree was finished, um, you 2 and Steve Lillywhite they couldn't figure out how to sequence it. And so uh, Steve Lillywhite's wife, Kirstie McCall, who's the daughter of, mm-hmm. she was the daughter of Ewan McCall. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know her, her music. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, I'll do it. And um, so she did it. And they loved it. And they said, how did she do it? And she said, I just put my favorite song first and my second favorite song second.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and, and there you go, done. Um, yeah. But with with songs like that, it feels also, I feel that there's many ways, there's a novelistic way. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And sometimes that can be also, you know, feel is such an important thing, too. Um, mm-hmm. But it does seem like an agonizing decision where it's like, how do I, how do I, because you're right, the bookends make perfect sense. But then those middle pieces seem like they'd be tricky. Right,
1: right. But then you have to hope that people will, like, even consume it the way you've intended. Yeah. but because of streaming you know everything's a single and 10 singles are a record like you could think of it that way and you could think of it that way and say well that just takes a lot of pressure off because you know thank heavens they got rid of the shuffle feature on spotify because i hated that mm, <laughs> where people yeah. could just resequence your record that you've spent all this time you know putting in Ugh. what you think is a perfect order the most perfect perfect order that you can get but yeah it's uh i don't know so Yes. People may only just listen to one track and how, how many people will actually listen to one, to the whole album sitting in one place. Right. If any, if any of them, or maybe they'll just put it on in the car, if they can still, you know, who knows, maybe they plug in, listen to it on Spotify in the car and, you know, they get to their destination by halfway through the third song and then they pick it back up, you know, so just like, everything in our lives it seems like everything's so fragmented and so many things are pulling at our attention that the idea that anyone could sit and like listen from the first note to the last note is a beautiful thought I don't know how realistic it is
0: when you get a new album do you do that do you if you get you know by someone you admire you know do you say I'm just gonna so how do you absorb your music as a fan
1: Yeah, it's rare that I get to do that because just like everybody else, I'm just like constantly running from place to place and trying to find those quiet moments to listen to something. And there's so few and far between in our lives. you know. I think that that's one of the reasons why people like vinyl so much or maybe why young people do. I mean, because it's such a completely different listening experience than what they probably had ever experienced because you can't listen to an LP running around. You have to sit in front of your speakers. To hear it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like yeah, it's going to sound good because you're not listening to it on your phone, you're listening to it on speakers that are designed to bring out all the great sound, you know. So, I, maybe that's one of the reasons for the resurgence of popularity of vinyl is because it forces people to readopt what we knew as like the only way people ever listened to music, you know, in 70s. Now it's like a new thing for for the youngsters.
0: Yeah, I think unconsciously my own brain has gotten Rewired where I do it like you do, it. I just sort of do it piecemeal. Um, whereas in the old days, I used to just you know absorb it front to back and and um you know carry it around with me and listen to an album 40, 50, 60, 70 exactly.
1: Time. Well, that's right? true too, because I mean, there weren't there was not so much music to listen to, right? You know, I mean, right. and so you're right, you would listen to it over and over and over, and because of that, those records, those foundational records, are so much a part of us. I don't know if it's the same. For kids that are listening to some streaming something over and over I mean maybe it is but maybe just not as a whole piece of music like as a sequence of songs maybe it's just one song that they kind of get ingrained in them that way I don't know it's yeah, it is different right. though it's so yeah. much has changed I mean so much has changed about the way we interact with our environment because of you know social media and phones and distractions and digital consumption versus physical consumption and there's so many ways that it's it's kind of you know reality shaping the art too you know because when I started working on this record I'd you know just come from a Spotify panel where they're like this is liberating for creators because you no longer need to think in terms of creating albums just create content create singles you know and so I don't know that it's as satisfying like as a writer it's it's different for you your work is an arc but our work could just be like a three minute arc but if there's still this desire to kind of join these three minute things together into a piece that says something and you ha- you're constantly fighting with the digital service providers on that because man there's they're single focused and we're still thinking in terms of creating a work
0: yeah because the me- the medium is so different i remember being at the bus stop when i was 15 and we would say that what what's the best album closer of all time you know oh it's the replacements uh, here comes a regular it's violent them's good feeling it's and the, and the conversation wouldn't stop and now i couldn't name one album closer from the last 20 years which is embarrassing
1: right i know but it's not your fault
0: yeah <laughs> yeah i still feel can, really bad about it you can
1: let it, you can let it go
0: <laughs> i feel i don't feel good about it um but now this new album has gotten tremendous critical acclaim as all your work has and you know you're so decorated as a musician do you can you take compliments do you are you good with with like positive i mean it seems like a silly question but sometimes it makes people uncomfortable to hear um positive um, praiseworthy comments about their work are you do you sort of not put too much stock in that? Of course, you appreciate it, but it, you can't live or die by that kind of stuff, right?
1: No, you absolutely can't live or die by it, especially the criticism, because then you would just have to fold up your tent and go home. <laughs> I know. But but the validation and you know to know that it what you're doing reaches somebody and has meaning to somebody else, then you feel uh, you know like your job has been at least partially done. And so I think it is really important the positive reinforcement is really important and it's meaningful. How did
0: you, in, in terms of communicating the medium and the art of music as a mother, was that something that you wanted to specifically impart in your kids, or did you want to be more organic and say, if they are attracted to it, they're attracted to it, I'll just leave it there and see what happens?
1: Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, our kids pretty much couldn't avoid it because <laughs> we have um, we have this great office space and studio on Music Row it's the um, the home of the Glazer brothers and it was used to be known as Hillbilly Central but it's where the outlaw movement and country music kind of came together and it's just a couple blocks from our kids school so that was all kind of by design you know we had got the building and we thought well hopefully they'll get into university school and then they can walk home from school or walk back to the office and spend their afternoons in the office so our kids like from the time they were born, even before they were born, because we toured when I was pregnant with my daughter, you know, the whole time, like up to right two weeks before she was born. So it's very, I mean, she's really used to being around music. and they both grew up around music. And as soon as you know she was old enough to crawl, she would crawl out from the wings of the, you know, where she was sitting with a babysitter and crawl out on stage and then she would sing and dance and do all this stuff. And our son, too, so there there was no escaping music and um you know I made them come out and sing old Dan Tucker and all, do all that kind of stuff <laughs> and, I, and they they'll probably be telling their therapists about it years from now but so far they don't seem to resent it too much and they're both really musical our daughter sings with us a lot now in fact she was um, came out to the Opry with us last weekend and did her Opry debut uh, singing a tune with us which is really very really cool oh that's so cool yeah and you know I mean the thing about this music is I believe anybody can play folk music. There's a place for everybody in the ecosystem. You don't do not have to be a virtuoso. You can be just anybody can play three chords and get in the jam. And that's how I always felt about it with our kids. The community is intergenerational. It's welcoming. It it will welcome you from the time you're a toddler to the time you're, you know, 95 years old if you live that long. And that's one of the great things about it. And there's a place for everybody. And so I really wanted my kids to have find their place in that community. And it didn't have to be as professional players and singers, just some place in that community appreciation and ability to participate. So yeah, I I um, I um didn't have to force it too much, but definitely prodded them along in that direction.
0: How hard are you on yourself, like either after a live gig or a writing session? Are you, in terms of just self-criticism, just going, you know, because I have times where I'll, I'll write and nothing happens. I just go, Oof, mm-hmm. that was awful. But I mean, I feel like it's good to at least do it, even if it yields nothing. I think that's part of the process. Um, right. How are are you hard on yourself in any part of this creative <laughs> venture?
1: So who isn't, right? I know. I mean, I think that that's what keeps us striving for the next bar. You know? Um, yeah, I mean, constantly, constantly. You know, wanting to be like a better improviser and have you know a deeper harmonic sense more rhythmic ideas i mean there's there's so many places to go and you know yeah you just, as you see the runway getting shorter it's like come on you know it's like really need to keep your foot on the pedal and keep it moving forward
0: and on the same token do you also if you nail it in your in the back of your head somewhere do you go oh well done that was pretty good
1: <laughs> oh well i think that everyone deserves a small pat on the back but just a small one yeah, and think. then on on to the next challenge
0: yeah, yeah, and if it comes from from yourself, I think you, you know you've done well. It's like ah, I must have really nailed that one. Um, I talked to Robbie Folks. I don't, uh, he was on my show a couple of weeks ago. He just put a bluegrass album out. Do you know Robbie?
1: Yes, I listened to part of your um, interview, and uh, in fact, we put out his record.
0: Oh, that's that's on Compass.
1: It's on Compass, and the way that came about was that Robbie called me up and asked me if I'd play on a few of the tracks, and uh, I just like I did the sessions and then went off to some festival and I had the music so stuck in my head. I was like, emailed him like, this stuff's brilliant. And I think he's just an amazing songwriter. And he's just, he's just the triple threat. I mean, he's a great player, great singer, but his writing just kills me. I just think it's so nuanced, it's so funny, insightful. It's just like, it's everything all at once. So we just, I just said, you know, I don't know what you're planning to do with this record but I love it. And you need a home for it we'd love to do it and so it worked out that we got to put it out
0: it's such a great album in the old days i would look at a a, you know look at vinyl or a cd or a cassette and i would scour the liner notes and i would know who everyone was on all the personnel i feel really stupid i didn't know that you were on that album
1: oh well it's harder to know especially if you just got a link you know in a digital book it's just like it's just doesn't really exist but if you're into vinyl i will put a copy in the mail to you
0: I love that. That'd be fantastic. I love okay. it. Love that consider album. It,
1: consider it, it done. Yeah, I love it too. It's such great songs.
0: It's so good. What he was saying, you heard the part where he was saying about how bluegrass used to be like, there was like a charm in the sense that there was a sloppiness to it. Mm-hmm. Did you know what he was talking about? I was trying to get my head around that. I like that.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm not sure if this is what he was saying, but it's true that like there's a greasiness to like the first generation bluegrass that. You know, I feel like when people started to record bluegrass with click tracks, went away a little bit. Mm-hmm. But there's like an imperfection. Of course, like imagine like how the how records were made in the nineteen fifties completely different than the way they're made now, right? And bluegrass records, I mean, there's stories about Ralph Stanley. It's like you make your whatever, you make your one record before lunch and the gospel record after lunch. It's like people are just churning this stuff out. And you know you hear Earl Scruggs play one of those tunes with his tuners. You know where he's tuning the second string, and it doesn't go back to perfect pitch. But that's the take. And you would never let that kind of stuff go now. You know now you can fix everything with Pro Tools. So, yeah, you right. So things. So people are just you know will tweak things within an inch of its life. It's a real art to know when to stop and leave the life and in the track. Because like those Motown records those weren't perfect, but they had, they captured such a feeling that they're classics. So yeah, you can certainly make something too perfect. And I'm not sure if that's what he was alluding to in bluegrass, but I know that the the temptation is certainly there to tune and fix and slide and put everything in the pocket. But yeah, go back and listen to Flatten Scruggs, Bill Monroe, you know?
0: Raw and alive. Exactly yeah yeah I'm so grateful that we did this thank you so much for for chatting with me and I imagine you must have a huge following here in the Bay Area like you must do really well in Berkeley and San Francisco
1: well I would not say it's huge Alex <laughs> but <laughs> we have gotten to play hardly strictly bluegrass uh probably a 10 or 11 times mm-hmm. Warren Hellman who started the festival was a banjo player right and right. and a and an investment banker so we shared that we shared the fact that we were both recovering investment bankers and financial <laughs> players. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Have you played Freight and Salvage?
1: Not the new freight. We played the old freight, but we're due. We're due for a visit for sure. I love the Bay Area. It's I've still listened. my my favorite part of the country.
0: I'm so glad to hear that. Play the new one because they did a great job. It is so beautiful. I, mean, um, I would like to. Yeah, it's it's. I've seen two shows there recently, and it just sounds so good. And I think people would be thrilled to see you i love the album i love this conversation thank you for um for supporting the program and being open to this
1: yeah of course thank you for the chat it was really great talking to you i'm so glad we got to meet and let's stay in touch for sure
0: My God, she's the sweetest. Isn't she just lovely? What a nice person she is. Uh, Allison Brown's new album, On Banjo, is remarkable. Go get it. AlisonBrown.com. It's Allison with one L. AlisonBrown.com. And uh, do some shopping. Go to the Allison Brown store, and uh, they have some cool stuff. There's a, uh, well, of course, you can get the album on vinyl. Uh, you can also get... Looks like it's uh, colored vinyl. Very cool. Uh, You can also get some uh, tote bags. There's a very cute tote bundle. It's got a cat playing a banjo. Um, There's Blackwing pencil bundles. There's t shirts. There's uh, cool stuff and music. My God, don't forget the music. Pick it all up, get all of her work. It's remarkable. Alex Green is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. You can also follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast or email me editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Check out BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, and tell all your friends. We would appreciate it. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Foggy Morning Breaking from Alison Brown's new album On Banjo. And this, by the way, features Steve Martin. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening. To Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio.
1: Good.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: Because <laughs> I love Double C Banjo mm-hmm. and the Clawhammer Banjo and Three Finger Banjo ever since I heard the Circle album with John uh-huh. McEwen playing right. with Earl Scruggs, Soldier's yeah. Joy. Mm-hmm. I've and loved Earl. that. Loved loved
0: the climber banjo with the three fingers. Yeah, it's you know. the
1: best So yeah, I had an a section and I texted you and like would you write a B and you said yes <laughs> Which I couldn't believe and so you wrote yeah. the perfect B. Well, I was just sitting there <laughs> <laughs>